Okay, good morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to do some uh, another highlighting of some themes in Luke's Gospel. We'll look at how he, uh, how he portrays women and our Lord's treatment of women. That's a really important subject that I want to talk about today. But before that, I have a very, very important announcement to make. I'm a free man as of Friday. Now, no, that doesn't mean Robin told me to get lost. <laughs> I, I want to stay with her. I, you know. um, she's still training me, as you, as you well know. All these years, she's still trying to train me as a husband. Um, and I'm learning very slowly. But I'm a free man. The surgeon said, do whatever you want. You're good. So this spring, if you can't find me, well, you know where I'm at. <laughs> I'll be swinging a golf club, no doubt about it. Go to Luke chapter 7, please. Luke 7. Now, as, as you're looking up Luke 7, you remember in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve were not content to live as human beings, and they desired to be like God. They believed the satanic lie, you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. Namely, you'll call the shots. You'll say what's good. You'll say what's evil. That's why you'll be like God. Okay? So they were not content to be human beings, living by faith, faith toward God, and love towards others. They desired to be God. So in Genesis 3, it's ruined. Everything is ruined, including the good things that God gave Adam and Eve for their benefit, namely marriage and gender. Marriage and gender. This is a huge topic these days because, remember, in the very good of creation, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, part of the very good of creation is what? Genesis 1, he created them male and female. Genesis 2, he created Eve from Adam's side, brought her to Adam and married them. And then God gives his divine commentary after he marries Adam and Eve. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his what? His wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus quotes that in the New Testament. Paul quotes it in Ephesians 5. This is absolutely paramount for our understanding of what happens in the New Testament with our Lord's treatment of women that Luke portrays so well. So what I'm saying is this, is that when Jesus comes, he redeems his fallen creation and his fallen creatures. Not just men, but also women. And he redeems and restores the broken and fallen relationships as a result of Genesis 3's sin. Because Adam and Eve, after the fall into sin, their relationship as husband and wife was in deep trouble. As you all know, marriage is very difficult because we're all sinners. We're believers, but we're also sinners. And we all know that marriage is difficult because you live with a sinner. And secondly, now in this world, we are tempted to believe the devil and the world's lies that if you have the DNA and the body parts of a woman, you can claim to be a man. And, if, and vice versa. So, uh, jokingly, I periodically, when I go to corn doors in town, <clears throat> and Mr. McHugh, Brian McHugh's there in his office, you know, he always comes out and says hi. <clears throat> I say, you know, Brian, I'm a six foot, six foot ten Chinese woman. And I'm a millionaire, and I'm here to collect. And by the way, right now, as, of, as I speak, the six foot ten Chinese woman, he has to, he has to admit in our country right now, that what I say about that is absolutely true, despite what he sees, etc. I'm a six foot ten Chinese woman. And if he disagrees with that, he could go to jail. Do you realize that? But he's not quite ready to admit that I'm a millionaire and I'm here to collect. 
And he goes, that'll never happen. And I jokingly say, yes, it will. One of these days, it will happen. Now, back to my point. When our Lord comes, he redeems and restores his fallen creation and fallen creatures to, way they, to where they're supposed to be. And so when he's dealing with women, he is restoring women to their vocation and their gender to be women. And one of the primary things that we, we're going to learn in one of the texts we'll get to in Luke's Gospel is to be a listener of the Word of God, just like the men. Listeners of the Word of God. Now, are you, are you, all, are you all in Luke 7? Look at verse 11. So soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she is a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. So you got this funeral procession. Now verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. And then he went up and touched the coffin, which would be shocking because if you touch a dead coffin or a dead person, you become ceremonially unclean, which means you can't go to church. You've got to wait a period of time to be cleansed before you can get back into society. So this is everybody's shocked by this. So the Holy One, Jesus, without sin, totally holy, is now what? Unclean, impure, which of course is what he's come to do. He's come to take not only the sin of the world in his body, but the effects of sin, all the impurity, all the uncleanness of all of it. And he's going to take in his body and answer for it on the cross. That's what's going on here. So the effects of sin, which is death, the effects of sin, which is uncleanness and impurity, he's going to take that and answer for it. So he touches the coffin and he says, young man, I say to you, get up. And the one who speaks these words are the one who is the same one who in the beginning said, let there be light. So John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and everything that was created was created by him, namely the word, Jesus Christ. So let's again review when our Lord speaks, his words do and give what they say. Even if you're dead. And so this gets to the, what I'm going to talk about in Casper, Wyoming at the end of the week. On the last day, if, you, if you're dead and buried and Jesus returns on the last day, he's going to say the same thing to you. I'll put it this way. Okay, sleepyheads, time to get up. Like when you wake your children up in the morning, okay, time to get up. That's what Jesus is going to say on the last day, resurrection day. And his words will do and give what they say. You will arise from your dead, from the grave, from the dead, and you will arise. Because he said so. Because the one who speaks these words is the same one in the beginning who said, let there be light. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. See how he restores relationships? This woman is very very precious to Jesus, and he restores the son to his mother so that she can be a what? A mother. So if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, when Jesus comes, he redeems, he restores, he recreates relationships for what they're supposed to be. You remember that when Jesus, right before he dies on the cross, he's going to leave his mother, right? If he dies, Mary's by herself because we think Joseph is dead by then. So she won't have anybody to take care of her. And so what does Jesus do from the cross? John, come over here. Do you see her? Now she's your mother and you're her son. Take care of her. 
See how this works? He puts Mary into a family. John's going to take care of her from now on. And then look at verse 16. They're all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us. Well, that's true, but more than a great prophet, God has appeared to us is what they should have said. Nonetheless, God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So he restores this relationship. He gives the son back to his mother so she can be a, a mother. Now, why is this important? Well, because we live in a country which says, uh, if you want to be a mother, you're cutting yourself short. There's so much more to life than being a, a mother. <laughs> uh, ladies, ladies, Jesus has restored motherhood. So if anybody ever says to me again, if I ever hear this, I've heard this before, but if I hear it again, this is how I respond to it. Sometimes when I talk to a young mother, she'll say, well, I, I'm just a mother. Just a mother? Are you kidding me? This is a God-given holy vocation. God works through you to create life and sustain life and take care of life. This is a wonderful gift. So don't just say, I'm just a mother, as if it's a drudgery. Okay? No, this is God using you. Any questions about this? I, go ahead. I think society, if you say, oh, I'm just a mom, you know, I just stay at home with my kids, that society has led us to think that. But that's not good. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's good. Right. This is one of the dangers of the feminist movement in the United States. The feminist movement, and I'm talking about the really hardcore feminists, they would say that if you're a stay-at-home mom, you're cutting yourself way short. In fact, you're not a real what? You're not a real woman. You're not a real woman. They'll go back to Genesis, you see. In Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, he made them male and female, and what did he tell them? Be fruitful and, well, have kids. Now see, the devil's at work in the feminist movement in the United States, which says, don't stay at home and have kids, because if you do, you're not a real woman. Now don't misunderstand what I've said. I didn't say you can't work outside of the home, ladies. You can. Okay. But don't believe the lie that if you choose to stay home with your children, that you're not a real woman. Does that answer your question or comment? Okay. Anything else? So. Uh, Mrs. Coolman, if you'd be so kind, because I, I forgot my phone, keep me on track of time, and I have to quit. Just give me the the Bill Callahan move. I will. If you don't know, if you don't know what Bill Callahan did during a Nebraska football game, you know, look it up online. He did this one time <laughs> against Oklahoma, I believe it was. Now go to Luke seven again, and go to verse thirty-six. This is one of the most delicious accounts in the New Testament for the highest worship of Jesus. So, restoring his fallen creatures means restoring them to worshiping him properly as exhibited by this woman. Verse 36 in chapter 7. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. You know, they didn't sit in chairs, they reclined. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, hint, hint, what do you think the sinful life was? <laughs> Prostitute, yes. As we will see. <clears throat> so she lived a sinful life in that town. She learned that this guy named Jesus is eating with this Pharisee at his house, and so she shows up. Notice, she goes after Jesus. She seeks him out after she hears where he's at. 
No white coat fascist will stop her. <laughs> you don't know what I'm talking about? Talk to me after class. No one will stop her from coming to Jesus. No one. And she brings an alabaster jar of perfume. <clears throat> now, most likely, you hear about this and you think it's like a big jar that she'd carry around with her hands. Most likely, it's around her neck. Because a woman who lives this sinful kind of life, they didn't have toothpaste and toothbrushes like we do today. What was the gift you gave us, Allie, for Christmas? What's that toothbrush called? A, yeah, some, some electric toothbrush that cleans my teeth better than I've ever eaten in my life. It's magnificent. I'm the old-fashioned dinosaur. You know, you do this. Now all I have to do is just stand there and hold it and let it do the work. But this, this ointment that she brings is most likely on a chain around her neck to perfume, perfume her breath because of her occupation and not only her breath, but uh, her torso, upper torso. You know what I'm talking about? Because of her line of work. This is very important to keep in mind in this story because the people who are watching this are going to get the wrong impression. So she brings this perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, kissed his feet, and she pours perfume on them. Now, if you're sitting there watching this, what are you thinking? You know what this woman's occupation is. What do you think she's doing? She's putting the moves on him. You better believe it. And that's not what she's doing. She knows who she is, a sinner. And she knows for whom Jesus has come, sinners like her. And no one will stop her from coming to the Savior of sinners, even if I'm the worst of sinners. Let's keep going. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So. This Pharisee thinks that she's putting the moves on him and that Jesus is accepting this. And Jesus then speaks up and says, Simon, now we know his name. Simon, I've got something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii. Now keep in mind that one single denarius was worth a day's wage. So when we've got 500 denarii, we're talking almost two years of wages owed. Any of you owe that kind of money? If you follow Dave Ramsey, don't do that. Oh, we got somebody else. Somebody built a house. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So one owned him 500 and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So what's he do? He cancels or forgives, forgives the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Oh, you've judged correctly, Jesus says. And then he turns to the woman. Notice how this works. He turns to the woman, but yet he's talking to Simon. Isn't that delicious? <laughs> so he looks at her, and now he's talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head. But she poured perfume on my feet. Jesus is saying, 
You know how people treat guests in a home. When they enter your home, this is what you do to your guests. And you didn't do any of it for me. And yet this woman who has done it all for me. Let's continue. Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus says to this woman, your sins, they're forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even, who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman exhibits the highest worship of Jesus. And what's that? How do you spell the highest worship of Jesus in the New Testament? That's right. F-A-I-T-H. This is the highest worship of Jesus. And so she loves Jesus much. Why? Because she has been forgiven everything. The opposite, Simon, he's like this. I'm really not that big of a sinner. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what sin I'd confess to you, Jesus. I don't know what sin you'd need to forgive of me. And so Simon loves little. You see this? And so we learn from this text that when our Lord Jesus Christ comes to restore his fallen creation and his fallen creatures, this woman exhibits the highest worship of Jesus the way it used to be when? In the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. This woman, this sinful woman, now believes in Jesus as her Savior. And, that, and she knows that, he, that she is forgiven everything for his sake. And that's why she loves him so much. And now we learn another thing from the Bible. That faith always gives birth to what? <clears throat> to love. Faith saves. Love doesn't. But love flows from faith that saves. Faith that trusts in Jesus. And so she loves him with everything that she has. Because she's been forgiven everything she has. And so to push this further, if I can, may I? Yeah, like you're going to just... When there isn't love going on in a congregation... When there's not love going on in a congregation, or when there's not love going on in a relationship, a marriage or something, maybe it's a family relationship, when there's, when there's a problem with this, what, where's the real problem at? It's this. There's a faith problem. Because love always flows from faith. So I've learned this as a pastor. When there are people in a congregation that aren't loving one another, it boils down to this. The, the, the little faith, if you will. When there's little love, there's little faith. My point is, is when you know that you are forgiven for Christ's sake of everything, you are set free. You are set free to do what? To not think about yourself. Because you're saved for Christ's sake. So your, your attention's not on you anymore. I don't have to justify myself to anybody. Right? Because I'm justified before God for Christ's sake. So now I'm totally set free to look at who? Other people and take care of them in love. And this woman exhibits both. So my point is, is this woman exhibits what it truly means to be a human being. As a woman, faith toward Christ and love for others. And this is what he does when he restores everything. And that's what he's doing in your life. <laughs> that's the joy of it all. Any questions about that? All right, I'm going to ask you again. What's the highest worship of Jesus in the New Testament? It's faith. Now... Faith, on the one hand, I'm going to make two more points, then we're going to move on. Faith, on the one hand, is first of all, passive. Namely, it is given to by the Lord. 
And so she is given to by the Lord. What is she given? Forgiveness. She knows that. And so that her, her faith that is given forgiveness from Christ then becomes very what? Active. In love. And this is what it means to be a human being. So Jesus restores people to be what? A human being and not try to be like who? God. Adam and Eve tried to be like God. Ruined it for everybody. And now Jesus says, stop doing this. I'll, be, I'll tell you how to be human being. By the way, so Jesus then... <clears throat> Jesus then, in his incarnation, teaches us what it truly means to be a human being. So again, brush your teeth. <laughs> brush your teeth on how you talk. You've all been taught to err is human, haven't you? To err is human. No, it's not. So to sin is what it means to be a human being? No. So when Jesus comes, he doesn't sin. He lives this life perfectly as the perfect human being in our place. So Jesus said, to not sin is what it means to be a human being. See? Yes? Correct. That's, that's, that, that's, that's our fault. And we've been lied to by the devil. We believe this lie. We've inherited this, this original sin. And so we must trust God's word, don't we? Trust God's word. That he forgives us for Christ's sake. And then that produces love. And that's what it means to be a true human being. We, we believe this all by faith. On the last day, when God raises up our dead bodies, you'll know what it means to be without sin as a human being. We don't quite know that yet. But nonetheless, this is what it means to live as a human being. In the midst of still being a sinner. Yes. Both. Both. You're supposed to be both. That's why I pointed out both, so thank you for asking. So faith primarily must be given to before it can act. Just like you tell your children, be quiet, listen to me. They listen, and then they do. So God, first of all, speaks. He speaks. That's how we're passive. He speaks. We listen. And then his words have their way with us, and then it produces our activity of love. So faith is both passive and active. Passive in, in the sense of for salvation. Active in the sense of service in the world. Does that make sense, Rhonda? Yes. Okay. This is why the Reformation took off like gangbusters, everybody. Because before the Reformation, this is what saved you. This is what saved you. Not this. In any event, I'd get way off track on that. Let's look at another passage. Are we good? All right. Let's look at another one, shall we? Um, this is Luke 10. <laughs> so while you're looking at Luke so the pastor calls or the pastor texts or he emails and he says, I'd like to come visit you at your house. And you say, okay, what time, what day? So they set up the time. And, and so you know he's coming over at 7 o'clock on Thursday night. And so I'm, I'm doing this just for fun now, okay? So just run with it. So it's, it's 6.30 and you remind your family, pastor's coming at 7. Go get the Bible. Put it on the table. <laughs> Now, are you in Luke 10? Look at verse 38. Again, here we will learn from a woman what is the highest worship of Jesus, the passive way first, and what it means to be a true human being as a woman. 
Verse 38, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet. So Mary's a do-nothing. Got that? Mary's a do-nothing. Listening to what he said. Verse 40, Martha, she's a do-everything. <laughs> and she's distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Because you know, the pastor shows up, and now we got to have supper. And so she's got the roast beef in the oven. She's got the fine china. She's got to polish the silver. She's got to get the wine from the, the, the cellar, etc. And she comes to him and says, Lord, don't you care that my sisters left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So Mary, the do-nothing, she's passively listening to the word of God, sitting at Christ's feet, listening to the word of God. Doesn't mean that Mary won't be active. She certainly will be. But notice they've got it backwards. Martha, she wants this to be done all the time, the active stuff. But when you're before the Lord, the first thing that must happen is listen to his word. So see, folks, this is why when you come to church, the guts of the service is what? Listening to the word of God. So if you, if you get a pastor down the road who cuts out the word of God in the service, you'd better take him out for lunch and get him a really strong cup of coffee or maybe with foam, a head, a head of foam on it. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe a little bit of whiskey so they'll finally listen. Say, Reverend, don't ever cut out the word of God from the, from the service because that's, that's what we're there for. Are you following this? This is the most important thing, Jesus says, to listen to the word. Now, this is, a, this is also very important for another reason. Now, you remember, think of your Old Testament, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Faith, love, Adam and Eve. Then Genesis 3. That's how they're creatures. Faith, love. Then in Genesis 3, don't be content to be a human being. You shall be like God. You'll call the shots. You'll say what's good. You'll say what's evil. I don't care what God says, Satan says. You'll call the shot. And then they believed that lie, and they fell into sin. Let's back this up a little bit. You know the story from Genesis 3. Two things to begin. Number one, you've all learned from the scripture that God deals with his creatures through creatures. So Eve would have been told, you can eat from, Eve, Eve would have been told by Adam what God had said. You can eat from any tree in the garden, but you can't eat from this one because the day you eat of it, you will surely die. When God spoke those words, Eve wasn't created yet. So Adam, as the pastor and as the head of the household, as the, as the husband and the father, would have preached those words to Eve. So God would speak to Eve through the creature, Adam. So in Genesis 3, Satan then apes how God works. Satan appears in the form of a what? A what? A snake, a serpent, a creature. And the snake, the devil, the devil using the serpent then speaks to Eve. You'll notice that the devil doesn't talk to who? He doesn't talk to Adam. He goes after the woman. Why? Because in the beginning, in the very good of creation, who's the head, not only of the household, but also of the church? Adam. Adam is not only husband, but he's also pastor in the beginning. So don't be shocked. Was there church in the beginning? Yes. Because church is all about what? 
God speaking, people listening. So the Lord has a church in the beginning. Read Genesis 1. God's talking all the time. And Adam and Eve are always listening. There's church in the beginning. And so the highest worship, even from the beginning, is what? Listening and believing, trusting. Okay, now back to the story. So Satan goes after Eve, not the head, Adam. And, and where's Adam? You know the rest of Where's he at in all of this? He's standing right there. We know this because she gave him the fruit. He's right there. He's standing there. So two things are going on here. Adam abdicates his headship as pastor. Eve usurps Adam's authority of head as pastor of the church. And she does the talking. She does the preaching. This is really important, brothers and sisters. So, if you're picking up what I'm throwing down, here now in Luke 10, now the relationship is restored properly. When you are redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ as a woman, you don't tell Jesus, like at Mary and Martha's house, You'll notice that Mary did not say, shut up, Jesus, I'll do the talking. I'm in charge here, I'll talk. No, she sits and she does what? She listens. Do you understand what's going on here? Jesus is now the head of a new humanity. He is like the true faithful pastor where Adam wasn't. And he preaches and teaches. And what is the proper vocation of a Christian woman when she's at church? It is to sit and to listen. And this is why Paul in the New Testament says, in Corinthians and in Timothy, he says that women cannot be pastors for two reasons. Number one, because of the order of creation. He says Adam was formed first and then Eve was formed second. So the order of creation, in the very good of creation, is this. That man is the head of the family and He's the husband is the head of the family, and that a man is the head of a church or a congregation. And that the second reason why Paul says that women cannot be pastors is because of the way sin came into the world. It's because Eve usurped the authority of headship in the church, and Adam abdicated it. And so here in this story, creation is now redeemed, and now we learn what it's like to be in church. Now, I hope you're not offended by You really shouldn't be offended by this, ladies. You really shouldn't be. This is part of God's order of creation. And now he brings it back in Christ. This is why, and I know what I'm saying is extremely offensive in the world in which we live. I mean, if the Biden-Harris administration, if they wanted to today, they could come in here, what I've just said. When I said women can't be pastors, this, this can get me thrown in federal prison. Right now, it can. If they wanted to, they could do it. The FBI could be knocking on my door today. This is how scandalous it is. But, but the Missouri Senate has gotten so used to going to funerals. You, know, you all go to funerals and weddings and other services. And usually it's all women being pastors. And you've grown so used to it now that you think it's normal and right. And it's not. But anyway, this, this is, the point is, is that Jesus now restores the way it's supposed to be. And by the way... Picking up on this, pushing this a little further. Can any Joe Blow from off the street, any man, Joe Blow, be a pastor? No. He can't be a drunkard. He has to be a husband of one wife. He has to be able to teach. First Timothy, you remember. Remember we studied that? He has to be able to handle his household well, etc. He has to have a good reputation with outsiders. 
You can't be a criminal. Okay, so now, so if somebody came here today and said, I'm going to preach, Reverend. I'll be the preacher here. Well, you may think you want to, but you ain't. <laughs> and you won't let him either. Because no Joe Blow off the street can do this. This is really important. This apt to teach bit in 1 Timothy. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, that is huge. And as a pastor, one of the biggest enemies of the church and in the church are who? Pastors who can't teach. Who don't know Jack. Have any of you, have you ever, any of you ever asked the, your pastor, how much time does it take you to prepare your sermon? How much time does it take you to prepare a Bible class like this rambling Bible class that you do all the time? Have you ever, have you ever had anybody ask me that? I don't know if I've ever been asked that here. If I have, please forgive me. What's my point? The pastor has to be apt to teach, and part of his being apt to teach is he must be able to study and be given time during the week to study the Word of God. This is really important because I'm not going to be here forever. You're going to get another pastor one of these days. And if all, if all you think he's supposed to be doing is, is emergency roadside service, which of course has to be done. You know, somebody gets sick and they're dying. Yeah, that's emergency roadside service. Somebody's going to have emergency surgery. That's emergency roadside service. And pastors are doing that 24-7 like you do as a police, police officer. Uh, but, but we've lost track that the essence of the pastoral task is to study the word of God intensely so that he can teach it to you. However, if we provide you in-home care, you might be like, what, another 40 years? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Like, you really want that. <laughs> I'm, I'm the dementia and the, it's just going, it's go, I'd be a crazy old man, Mike. <laughs> Let's look at another text, shall we? Go to Luke 23. Luke 23. See, the Missouri Senate is under immense pressure to ordain women. I don't know if you're aware of that. But we are, like the Roman Catholic Church, we are under enormous pressure to ordain women from the culture. From the culture. And now from not only the culture, but I'm afraid now the federal government's going to get involved one of these days. And for my, for my money, uh, or my opinion, the first thing that the, the government's going to do with us is they're going to say, you ordain women or else we're going to take your tax-exempt status away from you folks. Now, what are you going to do when the federal government says that to you here at Trinity Murdoch? What are you going to do? Are you going to cave and say, oh, good. Okay. Is that what you're going to do? No, you're not. You're going to tell the federal government, go ahead, take, your, take our tax-exempt status away. We're not going to do it. Which means, hypothetically, putting the worst construction on it, hypothetically what will happen is, is they, will, they will bring federal people in here so when the stewards count the money on Sunday mornings, they're going to say, this, is, this all goes for tax. All of it. Which then means you won't give anything on Sunday, and you'll give it secretly through secret channels, and then they're going to come knocking on doors. Well, who's doing that? But then, then they're going to take our tax-exempt status away, and then the next step is they're going to close our doors. They're going to lock the front doors and all the doors to the building and say, you can't go here anymore. And then what are you going to do? Well, then you're going to have to meet secretly. It's going to be like the catacombs in Rome. This is how offensive this topic is. Because, you know, in the Missouri Senate, we don't ordain women, and therefore we don't ordain homosexual men either. See, that's huge scandal today. That's against all the federal administration right now in the, in the White House. The very fact that we don't ordain... But the vice, when he was vice president of the United States, what was one of the few things that he did? 
<laughs> you want to, <laughs> I, I have to watch myself here. One of the few things that Joseph Biden did as vice president was what? He married two gay men. And he said, this is one of the most important things I've ever done in my life. And so my point is, is that uh, the very fact that we teach what the Bible teaches on this stuff, well, get ready. Are you in Luke 22? But that goes back to what we talked about 23. last week, how the media portrays him as this devout Catholic. That's right. See, the Roman Catholic Church is at a crossroads right now. I think it's at a crisis that it's never seen in the 20th and now 21st century. Because uh, the bishops and the cardinals have to make a choice now. Are we going to commune a man that publicly contradicts the clear word of God on this, on that, on this, in that? And so what's going to happen is, is that there, in my opinion, there are going to be some bishops who are going to, they're going to finally have to cut bait. Or they're going to have to, you know what, or get off the pot. And they're going to finally have to say to the bishop of the Diocese of Washington, D.C., who has chosen to give Joe Biden communion as a faithful Roman Catholic, there are bishops all across this country who are going to team together and finally say, all right, Bishop of Washington, D.C., you're a heretic, and we will not commune with you either. So I, I, hypothetically speaking, humanly speaking, I think there's, there might be a schism coming in the American Roman Catholic Church. Because there are certain bishops who are going to say, this is heresy to do this. And we won't stand for it. I, I'm a geek. I follow certain blogs and bloggers, even Roman Catholic blogs and bloggers. I wouldn't recommend that you do that, but I do it because I want to know what's going on. And many, many faithful Roman Catholics now call the Pope what? The Antichrist. The Antichrist. And they're right about it. They're absolutely right. He is. The papacy is the Antichrist for all these reasons that we're talking about. As I talked about last week. Luke 23. The verses are 27 to 31. I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Let's even start at 26. Luke 23 starting verse 26. As they led him away, they see Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country. Poor guy. And they put the cross on him. And they made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, why would that happen? Well, because if you've been flogged, and if you know what flogging is, and he's been beaten severely by the Roman soldiers as well. Not only flogged, but beaten. You know, this is, this is blacklist kind of stuff here. On steroids. Beatings. You remember, flogging is what? There's a whip, and on the end of the whip is what? Treble hooks. So the person that they flog, they, they, they chain him around a pole that's in the ground, and he's on his knees, and the soldier takes the whip, and the treble hooks are on the end, and he slings the whip, hooks the back, and pulls. So we're talking being flogged isn't being whipped like the whip you get out every once in a while, Denny, and crack for the kids to hear at the barbershop. This is, a, this is a flogging in which flesh is ripped off your back. And that's why you were limited as a soldier how many times you could do that. Because if you kept on doing it, you'd kill the person. Because eventually, the treble hooks would start pulling out what? Internal organs. So Simon has to carry the cross for Jesus because physically he can't do it. Most likely. So all the Sunday school depictions, and don't get me wrong, I'm not... I'm not I'm not making fun of it or anything, but I'm, I'm just trying to illustrate 
that what you all saw in pictures in Sunday school classes about our Lord's suffering and his death on the cross really doesn't do it justice. Okay. So there's the, there's the physical agony of our Lord, but there's another agony that Jesus faces. There's the flogging, but there's a greater agony that Jesus endures on the cross. What is it, folks? Well, yes, he's bearing the sin of the world. Exactly. But before he dies, there are people below the cross. And what are they saying to Jesus? If you are the Son of God, as you claim to be, come down now from the cross, and we will, we will believe in you. Did Jesus come so that people would believe in him? Yep. But he will not be the Christ if he gets off the cross. And so people must believe in him as the crucified son of God, not the one who gets off the cross. And so you see Satan is using these people as his instruments to try and get him to get off the... And this, this is the most spiritual agony he ever, ever faces as he bears the sin of the world. So I didn't get to it. Let's go. So 27, a large number of people followed him, including... Women who mourned and wailed for him, Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. They will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is Dry. The point being is you have women who are constantly following Jesus. This is very interesting. They don't abandon him. Why not? Because they're like that woman. They're like Mary. Nothing will stop them from being with Jesus, their Savior. Nothing. Let's look at one more, I think. Uh, yeah, Luke 15. <clears throat> no rabbi would ever do this in Luke 15. Luke 15, starting verse 8. No rabbi would use a woman as the main character in a parable to make the point. Luke 15, starting verse 8. Or suppose a woman, a woman. <laughs> a woman has ten silver coins, loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Main character, a woman. The, uh, the parable of the widow who goes before the unjust judge, again, using a woman. No one would do this. Jesus does. Why? Because he, he redeems not only men, but women. And he positively portrays them as faithers. One final point. Again, now we live in a culture in which the, the sad irony is, is that the culture and the religion of Islam oppresses women. So again, don't believe the lie that you hear from CNBC or CNN, MSNBC, etc. That Islam is this, this wonderful religion that we should all love. It's not, for very, very many reasons. 
Okay, denies the Trinity, denies the divinity of Christ, denies salvation by faith alone. But the treatment of women, the treatment of women. So if Butch today converted to become a Muslim, Butch, hypothetically, if he was married, could beat his wife to a pulp and it'd be just perfectly fine. He could divorce his wife on, the whim, on just a whim and it'd be perfectly fine. He can marry underage girls and break federal law and state law by marrying underage girls and having intimate relationships with them. And this is all fine. Point is, is that in the ancient world, and even to this day in many parts of our world, women are treated like what? You know what, I don't need to use the vulgar term. What changed the world for the better for women? Was it Islam? Are you kidding me? I've traveled over the world. I know how is Islamic women are treated. I know how they're forced to dress. And don't misunderstand me, I'm not, not saying that you should dress a certain way, but I know how they're forced to dress. But what, what made the world better for women? It's Christianity. And we have this illustrated in the New Testament when Jesus, in John's Gospel, goes to a Samaritan woman and talks to her and redeems her and a Samaritan village, etc., etc., etc. So I'm going to go full circle and we're going to pray. So Luke, when he shows us that, that women are very precious to the Lord, it means that in our Lord's ministry to women, he is restoring women to be faithful women, to be mothers, wives, etc. I hope that's been helpful for you today. Don't be ashamed of your gender, ladies. Seriously. And ladies who have girls and boys, make sure that you teach them about gender and that it is God's gift. Because they're going to go to school. I'm not talking about Owen Murdoch necessarily, but they're going to go to college. And they're going to learn something quite differently. And if they watch any, any programs on TV, and that includes Sesame Street, that includes Sesame Street, Sesame Street's bought all the lies. They'll teach your children lies about gender, marriage, family. You don't believe me, watch it. You're shaking your head. Yes, you know. Sesame, Sesame Street has been taken over by the unbelievers. Question. There now, I seen one the other day where there, there, uh, there was somebody on TV oh, pushing it we should now call children the babies. So uh, until the age of four, they are all equal and there is no gender. Correct. And, and this is extremely dangerous because I fear that, that the federal government is going to force everyone to live that way. And if you disagree, the FBI is coming after you. Yeah. So we must pray and we must work. <laughs> Seriously. One other thing on this. We... Uh, the pandemic has, has revealed something to me that I've known for a long time, but it has revealed it to me even more. And you know that human beings are creatures of habit, don't you? If you're married to a creature, you know the creature's habits, don't you? So creatures have habits. And the pandemic has revealed to me that many Christians, yeah, many Christians, <laughs> many Christians now have been able to develop habits since the pandemic. And what are the habits? To no longer go to church. Now on the one hand, certain people have to be careful. But on the other hand, certain people don't. And the, I think the pandemic, besides all the other repercussions that it's had in, in everybody's lives, I think the church, the church is essentially being decimated in America because people are learning different habits. So people who grew up going to church 
Sunday mornings were all about being a church. Now all of a sudden, for now almost an entire year, have, de have de developed other habits, and they like it. Because now they can do what they want on Sunday morning, and the old Adam loves it. You see? I think this is one of the, the most, the biggest, the biggest negative repercussions of this pandemic. Well, I'm, I'm rambling. Okay, I'm getting the Bill Callahan sign. Was there another question? Yes, please. Right, right. That's yes. So, so, but virtual reality. There's a reason why it's called virtual, isn't it? Now we offer we offer the services the way we do for people who can't get out, like shut-ins, etc. But the church, the church is fundamentally what it is. It is people who are gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word and Sacrament in person. And what you mentioned, if I may, since I've run out of time, let me talk about this virtual communion thing next week. May I? Remind me if I forget. So I'm going to start next week about virtual communion. And I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag. There is no such thing. And again, this is part of the decimation of the church. Because now these people can do what? They don't have to go to church ever now anymore, do they? The old Adam never lets a crisis go to waste, you see. All right, let's pray the Lord's Prayer.